those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And today we have a bonus episode. What? Yes, we are releasing my appearance on the Coffee with Comrades podcast with the always brilliant, always awesome Pearson. And we had a really fascinating discussion about ecology and anthropocentrism and revolution. And I got to share a lot of ideas from the book I've been recommending nonstop, Braiding Sweetgrass, so stay tuned for that. And if you haven't checked out Coffee with Comrades, I highly recommend it. Mel and Pearson are incredibly insightful, thoughtful, compassionate, dope comrades, and I always love hearing their discussions. So I will link them below, check them out, give them a follow. And lastly, before we get into the episode, I'd like to shout out the new patrons. So thank you so much to Alan J, who generously increased their pledge. Thank you so much to Helena Johnson. Thank you so much to TWGS. And thank you so much to Adi Rivera Sonda. Once again, if you have the means and you enjoy this podcast, you enjoy the content that we put out for free for everyone, please consider signing up to be a sustaining member at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard. It really goes a long way. We also have great treats for you all now. We have great stickers and pins. One says animals are our comrades and the other says animals want capitalism to end. And they're both just amazing designs done by Menika Repka of Nooch Design Co. So check those out over at patreon.com. You can also just give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com, or share the episodes with friends and family. That always helps to increase our reach, and again, we really appreciate it. So with all of that out of the way, please enjoy this bonus episode with Coffee with Comrades. So on this week's episode of Coffee with Comrades, Mexi from Vegan Vanguard is hanging out with us. What's up, my friend? Not much. Well, I was just telling you that I'm <laughs> feeling like I'm getting sick and everyone around me is sick. So what better way to bring in fall than with a great flu or throat cold? But otherwise, uh, you know, just struggling with the work-life balance of being an academic. <laughs> yeah, for real. What What is your, you know, I, I, what is, I, I don't know what your field is. What are you researching? What do you study? What is your, what is your thing in academia? Yeah, so I have a PhD in geography, but it's human geography. So I basically look at political economy and environmental issues, and I focus on conservation, so protected areas, basically. Um, and what I'm doing now, I'm doing a postdoc where, because most of my career has just been critiquing basically colonial and capitalist forms of conservation or like the green economy and that kind of thing. So in my postdoc, I'm kind of pivoting towards solutions or potential alternatives and i'm um working on this project that's aiming to decolonize conservation uh in canada and hopefully abroad but starting in canada and um so it's led by uh indigenous uh, something called the indigenous circle of experts 
and they're trying to facilitate the implementation of tribal parks or indigenous-led conservation initiatives uh, across Canada, basically as um, declarations of sovereignty and then also being able to manage those lands in accordance with natural law and their own constitutions and whatnot and, and preserve them for seven generations into the future and, and all of that. So, so yeah, that's basically me, <laughs> geographer, uh, conservation, political, it's called political ecology, basically merging political economy with ecology. I love it. That's right. That sounds right up my alley. Um, I, out of curiosity, how far is the Unistoten camp from where you are right now? Because that's in Canada, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah, it's quite far though. I'm in southern Ontario, um, and it's in BC. So, okay. Uh, yeah, it's kind of across the country, but. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Do those run in like some kind of like similar circles though? You were talking about like the um, mm. the indigenous led kind of uh, directing towards decolonization. Is that kind of similar circles? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, at the climate justice TO event, uh, I think it was last year. Um, Canahus Manuel, who's kind of uh, leading the charge uh, against um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Tiny House mm-hmm. Warriors and such, uh, was there. Um, so yeah, I mean, Indigenous activists from across the country are are kind of all over um, and participating in a lot of a lot of events that that we go to in Toronto as well. So. Fuck yeah. 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 Yeah, that's awesome. Well, one of the things like I always love to ask guests and collaborators when they come on the show is like, how did you get radicalized? What's your story? How did you get into leftist politics? Yeah. So um, I, I kind of I always start the story from like my childhood, because uh, when I was a kid, I just obviously I didn't have any language for it. But I was, uh, I guess, like a strange kind of imaginative thoughtful kid and i from a very very young age i just really did not like the way that we were organizing our society i was just like but hang on a minute all we have to do is grow food and share it with each other like that that's basically all we need to do (laughs) right and so why are we doing all the rest of this and then you know i even in like grade school or early high school, you know, your parents or all the adults in the room are trying to get you to decide what you want to be when you grow up. And I just, I really struggled with that because I just thought, well, most of what we're doing is pointless though. And like, why, why would I want to do that? And why would I want to be stuck in a, in an office nine to five? That seems so, uh, just so far from what a human life should be. Um, and then, so yeah, in my teen years, I just kind of got kind of, you know, counter culture stuff really turned me on like ad busters and stuff. I was Dude, I into. loved ad busters. That yes. shit was so dope. <laughs> so good. I know people like poo-poo it all the time, but like that shit was so cool. And like yeah. de- I mean it, it definitely had like some serious limitations and oversights, but I still think like that it was a net positive, at least for my radicalization uh, in particular. So totally. I'm glad to hear that I have another AdBusters fan. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, at the time, it was like pretty revolutionary, right? I mean, what else am I going to be reading Teen... Well, today Teen Vogue is pretty radical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like foot and meat mouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean, you know, it, all, all the other magazines out there were pretty 
not radical at all. And so that one, I was just like, yes, this is great. Um, and right. at the time, I didn't see much much else like it. So anyway, then so I went to university and I was doing uh, environmental anthropology. And basically, you cannot learn about what's happening to the environment without then having that lead you towards the conclusion that capitalism is uh, broken and not not sustainable and awful. Um, so I learned a lot about, you know, colonial colonialism and globalization and how that related to environmental issues. And that was very radicalizing for me. I, I yeah, I would leave those, those lectures almost in tears sometimes because I'd be learning all this stuff that, um, it just felt like this huge weight, you know, like I just like, oh my gosh, nobody knows this and everyone needs to know this. And I can't believe that we're carrying on the society the way that we're doing, knowing that all of this is happening. And so, um, yeah, that was very radicalizing for me. And I went home and tried to tell my family about how terrible capitalism was. And they, you know, they weren't really having it for a while, <laughs> um, but they get it now. That's for sure. But yeah. And then so um then I decided to do a master's because I, again, I didn't want to work like for a company. I didn't want to work nine to five. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, oh, I'll just continue with school. Um, and like potentially I thought being a professor would give me more freedom or yeah. I mean, I didn't really realize that at the time, you know, at the time I didn't realize that universities are themselves corporations. Um, right. <laughs> One of like, these days, we're going to have to do an episode about that just because it's so, yeah. oh my God. Like, I would love to have like a, like a roundtable discussion with a bunch of other like scholars and academics on the left and just like talk about how fucked up yes. higher learning, like so, so-called higher learning is. It's yes. just such a, it, it, it's such a scam and such an awful, yeah horrendous thing that we've found ourselves in. So uh, it's something yeah. that I think that isn't talked about nearly enough. Um, but yeah, sorry no, for interrupting. Definitely. Go on, go on. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So uh, at the time I thought, oh, this is great. Like this will allow me to not work for a company because I hate capitalism. And this will allow me to set my own schedule because I was very, the thought of having to be anywhere between nine to five uh, just felt completely claustrophobic to me. I was just like, I will do anything to not do that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I was really interested in all this environmental political economy stuff. So I did a master's and um, in one of my classes, it was just a class about Marx's capital, basically. So all we did was read Marx's capital. <laughs> and then that was like even more cement uh, for my, yes, absolutely, this society sucks and I want to <laughs> change it. So Right. <laughs> hell yeah, yeah. well yeah. that's one of the things that we're gonna talk about today oddly enough uh, uh i want to talk to you a little bit about a couple of things um and i imagine like this conversation can be more fluid and dynamic than a lot of the discussions or interviews that we do um in the past and, and i'd love to just kind of dig into discussions about industry ecology and anthropocentrism and and biocentrism and sort of these mm -hmm. um nuances that escape i think a lot of the left um because you know historically and and this is something we were talking about when we initially discussed thinking about this episode right mm -hmm. is the left has always seen industrialization right as this vehicle for change right that, that, mm -hmm. that it was through industrialization that we could have a revolutionary anti-capitalist energy that could foment social change and i think mm -hmm. that you and i are both suspicious of that and and so yeah. i'm, I'm kind of curious like why uh you know what your reservations about that sort of um 
linear model of history is and, and, and why you think that that is a suspicious uh, trajectory for leftists to consider? Mm-hmm. Well, gee, uh, so many reasons. <laughs> and the reasons kind of span the different topics that we're going to cover today, probably. But um, so I guess one of the reasons, I mean, I think obviously just this idea of linear progress in itself is problematic. Um, I mean, especially when we look at what we've done to the planet and how, uh, you know, industrialization is moving so far away from this idea of actually living in reciprocity with the earth. It's really viewing the earth and nature as just natural resources. Like I just, as just objects to fuel this industrial growth, just this idea of linear progress and, and industrialization being um, better than not is also something that leads to like racism and uh you know that also undergirded this white man's burden kind of idea that you know it's it's our duty to go and civilize the rest of the world because what we have is better and uh what we have represents progress so i think that in itself is problematic um but then as well i think that you know capital has been really able to ad- Adapt, right? So this idea of industrialization as this vehicle through which revolutionary and anti-capitalist energy is necessarily going to drive social change. I mean, capital has really been able to adapt to that, right? Capital is able to move and labor cannot. So it's really been able to shift production to where labor is not as organized or where, you know, the local government will just crush the working class, etc. And this global race to the bottom is is really hard to fight, especially now in the age of automation, where workers' power is just becoming just diminished in in all ways. So um, I think this idea that socialism is inevitable and, you know, we can thank industrialization for that is... I, I mean, I think there's just some problems with that. <laughs> I think we actually have to actively build the world we want to see. But and then as well, yeah, just in terms of um, like environmental stuff, which I think we'll get into later. I just think that uh, I, I I don't think that we can continue to envision this idea of industrial socialism. Um, yeah. At this current juncture with the climate crisis and whatnot, so. No, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the, you know, crisis of anthropogenic climate change really holds the lie to this idea that, you know, industrialization is just going to necessarily lead us towards a more progressive and a more just and a more, you know, socially equitable society. Because like, I mean, at the end of the day, right, if we think about this critically, industry is really an outgrowth of capitalist enterprise in many ways, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be, but in in its current manifestation, it absolutely is, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, this this sort of uncritical acceptance that it's all just going to sort of magically transform the world into a better place should should always be suspect because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's definitely true that technology and industry can lead to huge gains for human beings right and like the alleviation of so much unnecessary suffering you know automation outside of a capitalist mode of production is an incredibly liberatory thing right it should free us up to to be able to pursue our pleasures and our passions and and to not be uh you know bound to this this system of wage labor but instead you know we have 
created and and accepted this totalizing domination of our lives that are subservient to work and industry necessarily plays a huge part in that Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i mean now i mean as i was saying automation under this system is leading to just deproletarianization um or deproletarianization sorry and that's I mean, that's something we'll have to deal with going forward of of what power the masses will have if they have no power, like labor power to withhold. Um, so, yeah. And, and I mean, just this idea of um, industry leading, creating the conditions to lead to this great socialist change. I mean, true, but at the same time, uh, you know, we have only, we have way less than 10 years right now to turn around climate change. And so I just fear, I suppose, that this trajectory that we're currently on, um, it won't really leave us enough time. Like, what world are we going to have for this beautiful socialist revolution uh, if the wheels of industry just keep on turning (laughs) at this current moment. Right. And, um, I just, I think it's pretty easy. I think it's easy for a lot of leftists to imagine when they're imagining the socialist future to imagine things operating like pretty similar, not super similar to the way things are now, but similar in the sense that we would kind of maintain the way that we're living perhaps our energy consumption obviously we wouldn't be consuming as many goods and and resources and such but um i don't know i hear a lot of talk about people just talking about you know nationalizing industry and whatnot um but not really i guess questioning the underlying assumptions that go into this industrial model and kind of centering our society still around just production and distribution and and not reciprocity at all like you know not actually changing the way that we think about ourselves in our ecosystems Does that makes sense no it makes perfect sense oh my gosh there's so much to unpack there um <laughs> okay where do we begin uh so i guess I, I guess a good spot to kind of think about right is you know you mentioned this idea of deproletarianization which is something that i think about a lot right like how our labor power is increasingly becoming so isolated and so atomized that we can't actually exert uh, our, our our shared collective power by withholding our labor, right? Because of mm-hmm. the fact that we are so uh, disempowered uh, and because of the way that capitalism has adapted to uh, types of strikes and, and uh, coalition building and unionization, unions have become increasingly obsolete, which is something that like Deleuze wrote, wrote about in Postscript to, to Societies of Control. And it's something that I think about like literally all the time because it's incredibly dangerous, right? Like this idea that we can keep using the same old tools uh, to, to recreate and to reimagine society is I think uh, anti-materialist mm-hmm. because it, it's, it fails to actually look and account for the material conditions of our given situation here in the year 2019 facing Mm -hmm. down the fascist creep and, you know, anthropogenic climate change. And so I think it's like incredibly dangerous to just continue to think that somehow we can use the exact same tactics and strategies from the past and that magically it's going to lead to our salvation. You know what I mean? Mm, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an amazing point. Um, I'm making a video right now about kind of strategies for post-capitalism and I'm kind of saying something similar that we really need theorists of today stepping forward. And I frankly don't see a lot of 
like materialist theorists of today who are actually analyzing the present day. I, I see people, I see a lot of political economists analyzing the present day uh, conditions. I mean, that's what I do as a political ecologist, but it's basically just around critique, right? I don't see a lot of theorists of today saying, you know, look, because of X, Y, and Z, our tactics need to change to be this or that or whatever, right? There's, I don't know. I mean, there's people like us who are trying, <laughs> right? Um, but I, I just, uh, yeah, I guess that's one of my um, pet peeves is when people um, just kind of cling to ideas from the past as if they are just immutable and as if we don't actively need to be really, really adapting them to the to our current situation, right? So I think that's a really great exactly. Point. Well, I mean. It's, it's also like, it's really comforting, right? To be able to think, okay, so these people did it this way, right? And so if mm -hmm. I just follow along these steps, then I should be able to help, you know, galvanize the working class and make things better. Like, it's a really comforting thing. But again, it, it is mm -hmm. idealist because it's looking backwards at a different place and a different time and a different, like, social fabric. And, and I think that this mm -hmm. is one of the dangers of sort of... Um, you know, a, a, a quote unquote scientific approach to the project of socialism or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you want to call it, right? It, is that it mm -hmm. can lead to this deterministic kind of approach that mm -hmm. while purporting to be materialist is actually just the opposite. Um, the other thing that I was, you know, really interested about by what you said, though, was like this idea of, of reciprocity. And, and, and I think that this kind of gets to at your point about not just critiquing, but also offering alternatives, which is maybe a good kind of flow into the next big kind of chunk of this conversation. But I was wondering if you might maybe talk a little bit about uh, th this idea of reciprocity as a form of social organization, rather than just consumption and production. Mm hmm. Yes. So I'm going to break into uh, Braiding Sweetgrass now, <laughs> written by do it. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, I have been recommending this book to absolutely everybody because it is just it is so beautiful. It's beautifully written. It's uh, it's just amazing. You know, it's about indigenous knowledge, science, worldview, economics, politics, etc. But it's just written so beautifully. So, um, so yeah, in this book, she really talks a lot about this idea of reciprocity and what that would mean. And um, for me, I think the something that we need to uh, unlearn in leftist spaces or I mean, just un unlearn in, in all of the West, basically, is our Western worldview that really separates ourselves from the rest of non-human nature. And it's really, really interesting. She talks about how this worldview really just cuts down to like everything that we've been taught, even our language, right? Um, so she starts by talking about the different stories between, you know, Christianity and then, um, you know, many indigenous uh, traditions. Um, the difference between Sky Woman Falling, the story of Sky Woman Falling and Eve. Um, and basically, you know, Sky Woman um, you know, fell out of the sky, pregnant, and um, 
you know, all of creation, all the animals and plants, etc., helped her to survive. Like they were all in this intimate relationship. And she, as a good guest, brought with her um, a bunch of seeds and scattered them everywhere to create more food and, and plenty and abundance for um, the rest of the animals and such. So it was really a, a story of building relationships and um, and reciprocity, really. Right. And then the other, you know, Eve on the other side, you know, she was basically just banished from this garden for tasting its fruit. So, you know, do not touch, right? Um, and then was made to just wander in the wilderness and earn her bread by the sweat of her brow, right? Not actually... Um, you know, not living in reciprocity, right? So she was instructed to subdue the wilderness into which she was cast. And just, you know, one story leads to this generous embrace of the living world and the other to banishment, right? And then, um, so she talks about, I'm just going to read this quote. Oh, well, this is about becoming indigenous to play. So it's not quite about reciprocity. Well, it is about reciprocity. Um, but she talks a lot about how, um, in order to live in reciprocity with the earth, you have to get reacquainted with the place that you are. And I think that in our globalized world, we are really not acquainted with the places that we are. Um, totally. I said this in a podcast recently, but uh, yeah, I mean, I live in Toronto. I, I really have no relationship with the ecosystem around me at all like I just live in my house and I do not enga- I mean I love camping I love hiking etc but I don't give back positively in any way to my ecosystem because I, I don't know anything about it right I just I go to the store and then I buy things that were just brought to me from halfway around the world with my money and I don't really have to engage in any way with my my environment um so she talks a lot about the idea of reciprocity is to become to become indigenous to place. And she talks about how like in settler states were all immigrants um, who came here with this kind of colonial, uh, you know, pioneering mentality that was also based in this Western worldview that divides humans from nature. Um, But becoming indigenous to to place means living as if your children's future mattered um, to take care of the land, et cetera, as if your life depended on it. And I think that we we're so the way that we're living now is so disconnected. You know, our our lives don't really depend. I mean, they do in the big sense, but in, in the immediate sense, like my life doesn't really depend on whether I'm actually giving back positively to the earth because I can, again, just go to the store and buy things, you know, like I, I don't really see the damage I'm doing. And we obviously haven't seen the damage that we've been doing collectively as a society until now with climate change, where now it's becoming really dire, but that's on a a global scale, not like a local scale. Um, So yeah, I mean, she, she asks, can a nation of immigrants once again, follow the example of Skywalk, sky woman and become native to place and to make a home. Um, So uh she'll i'm sorry i'm just like going like so much into all these ideas um no this is beautiful i love it okay okay um so yeah she talks also about um how like so our worldview it's it's all of the stories that we're told and it's also our language and this is what a lot of um my indigenous colleagues will say as well that english is actually the language of commerce um because 
basically it, we treat everything as an object. So um, like 70% of our language are nouns as opposed to verbs, because everything in English is basically a thing. Um, it's, it's either you're a human or you're a thing, right? Right. Um, whereas in many indigenous languages and in uh, Potawatomi, which is Robin Wall Kimmerer's language, um, 70% of the language are verbs. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and things aren't, things aren't, um, divided into masculine or feminine. They're divided into animate and inanimate. Jeez, where, that's so cool. Yeah. And, and most things are considered animate also, right? So there's verbs that are like, to be a hill or to be red or to be a beach <laughs> or to be a bay, right? Um, so and when you talk about it like that, right, like a bay is a noun only if water is dead. Um, and so in that way, it's just defined by humans. It's just this thing that's trapped between these shores and whatever. Um, but if you talk about being a bay right then you kind of you bring it to life and then you realize that well the the bay could do otherwise like it could become a stream or an ocean or a waterfall or whatever and there's all these verbs for that too so um basically it's in other languages right everything is alive instead of just an it right and i think that obviously really has um like really shapes the way that we think about ourselves in relation to the world and and then obviously the way we think about how we are in the world will will influence how we behave in it so um she says and this also applies to it, like i'm vegan obviously vegan vanguard um but this also kind of applies to the way that vegans talk about the way that we we kind of teach our children or we beat out of them the natural compassion and empathy and wonder that they have towards animals in the natural world. And right. so, um, you know, she says, our toddlers speak of plants and animals as if they were people, extending to them self and intention and compassion until we teach them not to. We quickly retrain them to make them forget. When we tell them that the tree is not a who, but an it, we make that maple an object. We put a barrier between us, absolving ourselves of moral responsibility and opening the door to exploitation. Seeing it makes a living land into natural resources. If a maple oh is an God, it... Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. If a maple is an it, we can take up the chainsaw. If the maple is a her, we think twice. Right. Yeah. And she talks about how, you know, um, a lot of elders will say things like oh you should go among the standing people which are the trees or you should go spend time with the beaver people or whatever so or the rock people so all of these things that we think of as just things um are thought of as actual like people or persons that that have their own um spark of life and and agency um and she says, imagine the possibilities, imagine the access we would have to different perspectives, the things we might see through other eyes, the wisdom that surrounds us. We don't have to figure out everything by ourselves. There are intelligences other than our own teachers all around us. Imagine how much less lonely the world would be. And I oh, loved my that. God, that's so good. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, that's so great. Oh, my God, I have to read this book now. It reminds yeah. me like these conversations about language remind me of that poem um from adrian rich the burning of paper instead of children where she she says uh this is the oppressor's language yet i need it to talk to you and mm -hmm. and like this idea right like of like the sort of internal linguistic oppression right of of 
stealing the agency from the natural world and turning it into something that can be exploited and mm-hmm. utilized and, and turned towards capitalist exploitation is, is absolutely fascinating. And, mm-hmm. and really, I mean, honestly, it's really damning of, of <laughs> you know, the ways that we think about you know, just the English language generally, and and sort mm-hmm. of like how how oppressive it can be, um, mm-hmm. and it, and it, and it and it as a you know as a person who really cares about English and, and cares about writing and creativity and and storytelling, it, it it makes the task of telling liberatory stories so much more daunting when mm-hmm. you consider the fact that like literally baked into the language that you're using is exploitation and Mm -hmm. dehumanization or rather denaturalization is perhaps a better word um Mm -hmm. and this sort of relegation to the margins and turning uh the rich vibrancy of life into things that's so Mm -hmm. oh my gosh what a powerful way of thinking that's so so interesting And and it really reminds me too of like this this idea right like more and more I think people are beginning to remember that we are not apart from our ecological systems and our environments, but we are rather a part of them, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I don't think we're nearly recognizing that quick enough, but you know, we're beginning that work in some really mm-hmm. important ways and mm-hmm. and I think that idea of um of decentering the human is is a, a really urgent problem of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's why I talk. That's why I focus so much on this idea of industrial socialism because you know in a lot of my videos I basically talk about like political ecology and how capitalism is destroying the earth, and then I'll get a bunch of people commenting, you know, oh well, yeah, Soviet Russia was so great on the environment, or blah, you know, all these these comments about like, oh, well, did they really do that great on the environment in these socialist states or whatever? And I think that, part, I mean, there's obviously a lot of reasons for for that. But I think also it's, I think that we as leftists, when we're thinking about our strategies for post-capitalism, whatever that looks like, we need to really radically alter our worldview, right? Because I, I think that it's very possible to try to create some kind of socialized production and distribution system that still maintains this worldview that everything else is just an it or a thing right. that that is an input for our labor systems to transform right right and especially if like again if we take you know uncritically this idea that you know it's necessary to transition from capitalism to socialism to full communism right and that that Mm -hmm. industry is a necessary and integral part of that transition then it already precludes us from actually imagining Mm -hmm. other ways of 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 giving that agency back to that which we've denaturalized which i think Mm -hmm. is you know it it, it's uh it's it's shooting ourselves in the foot you know it it, Mm -hmm. it's it's um it's putting the cart before the horse and and it's it's refusing to recognize that there are actual other agents of of social and environmental and ecological change at work in the world and that they could be you know in many ways and i don't want to you know spiritualize it or something but could be almost in a comradely like uh mm-hmm. you know tension with us and in, in, in trying Absolutely. to make the world better right and and i think that 
you know, moreover, I, I come to a lot of this stuff from like social ecology, um, because mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways, like a lot of the sort of naturalist stuff I, I was like really attracted to like as a younger person mm-hmm. but I didn't really I lacked like a, a concrete language to make it materialist which I think was one of the reasons why I was like kind of put off by it because I was like mm, this feels really like idealistic it feels really like you know pseudo spiritual mm-hmm. and 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 I'm not really personally all about that stuff but like I think one of the you know, even though I have some critiques of Bookchin, one of the things that we're, and we're going to talk about some of those critiques here in just a second, but you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about social ecology in particular is this idea of recognizing the urgency of bringing society into harmony with our ecological systems because mm-hmm. we recognize that they are in fact the outgrowth of those systems, right? Like mm-hmm. they're not, they're not like in a, you know, one versus the other but rather they are inseparable they are integral they are necessarily interrelated to each other right and so this Mm -hmm. idea that you know uh he writes in what is social ecology indeed to separate ecological problems from social problems or even to play down or give only token recognition to their crucial relationship would be to grossly misconstrue the sources of the growing environmental crisis and i think the more that we you know divorce ourselves from thinking ecologically and thinking about our our biome we are going to continue to court disaster and exacerbate anthropogenic climate change Mm -hmm. no i fully agree and i i think that people don't really recognize how important the idea of worldview is to whatever future that you're actually going to build right um because even if we try to put ourselves back within the biome, I mean, there's still, uh, there are ways to do that, which still follow a, like a disconnected Western worldview, right? So there's still, let's say that we were thinking that we're going to just manage nature for the best possible outcomes, right? I mean, there's a right. lot of people who think that about like geoengineering and things like that. And um, it's not that we can't or that we shouldn't use technology to aid in our uh, aim to become, you know, more reciprocally related to the environments around us. But there's definitely like you can still have that kind of a mindset. Um it's like and, the shepherd guiding nature, right? Like yeah. even 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 though it's like a, a quote unquote gentle leader, it still centers human beings, right? Like yes. and this the, and this kind of gets into my critique of of Bookchin because at times it still has some some anthropocentric like holdovers, right? And mm. uh, you know the whole idea, right? If we look at the word anthropocentric, right? It's human centered, and so mm-hmm. it at times you know uh, as much as I you know, enjoy uh, Bookchin's writing and think that it's lively and useful. My my big critique of it is that it, it can at times feel really anthropocentric, right? This, this sort of gentle, benevolent human who is going to guide and direct nature. And I think that's a really dangerous idea, uh, yeah. first of all, because, you know, it, it's not a far shake away from dominating nature, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's very, I can very easily see how one could move from, I'm going to guide nature to I'm going to dominate and exploit nature mm-hmm. and the, the other like big con- conviction that i have is that like w- like what a huge like that's so much hubris like yeah. ha- like how do you think that you can direct nature like yeah. like come on dude um and so like you know i think that there are 
are some really urgent, there's a really urgent need to break through the, the sort of tedium of anthropocentrism and, and mm-hmm. afford some kind of, you know, not like pseudo-spiritual or hippie or reductive kind of way of looking at it, but to really, again, to center it in this really materialist, concrete way where people recognize not only their agency, but also the shared agency of their biome and that it Mm -hmm. not be this coercive or domineering kind of thing, but it it truly be an emancipatory and harmonized uh, coexistence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a huge difference between respectfully learning uh you know learning your place within the ecosystem and doing your best to contribute positively um you know in in accordance with the gifts that you have been given by your ecosystem like there's a big difference between that and then yeah centering yourself as the governor (laughs) of nature basically right um so yeah she she talks about um gift economies which it's just incredibly incredibly fascinating um and i mean obviously i've heard of gift economies before but the way that she talks about them is is really really great and it it really again goes along with this worldview of um decentering the human um so she talks about the fact that you know the nature of an object let's say a strawberry or a pair of socks is changed by the way that it's come into your hands, either as a gift or as a commodity. So if you Oh my God. Can you read that again? That's so good. That shit's dope. Read that shit back. Okay, so the the nature of an object, let's say a strawberry or a pair of socks, is so changed by the way that it has come into your hands as a gift or as a commodity. And so the pair of wool socks that you might buy at the store, red and gray striped, uh, you might feel grateful for the sheep that made the wool and the worker who ran the knitting machine, hopefully, I hope so. Um, but you have no inherent obligation to those socks as a commodity or as private property. There's no bond beyond the politely exchanged thanks- thank yous with the clerk. Um, you've paid for them and the reciprocity ended the minute that you handed the money, right? So the exchange ends once quote unquote parity has been established. Oh my God, this is so fascinating. It's yes. so good. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I know. Um, But what if those socks, those same socks were a gift, right, given to you by your grandmother? That changes everything. The gift creates an ongoing relationship. You will write a thank you note. You will take good care of them and you might wear them when she comes to visit, even if you don't like them. Um, (laughs) Right. So there's there's a huge difference between this idea of a gift and commodity exchange in that a gift establishes a feeling bond between two people and it sets up uh, it sets up certain obligations and responsibilities that are attached to the gift. So, you know, a gift is something for nothing, but that there are always obligations to that go along with that. Um, and it creates a relationship. And um, so she talks about... Um, so so basically the, the rule here is that we should all be giving gifts to our comrades constantly. Is constantly, what, is what constantly. <laughs> yes. Um, but then also that, that like the gifts are supposed to move. So if you receive a gift, then you're supposed to give it away, right? Like no, like no one person is supposed to just amass all these gifts, right? Like that just, that actually takes away from the value of the gift. The gift has more value if it's continually in motion. It actually has more value than the more that it's shared um and so she talks about um 
you know, because people will, will be like, oh, well, you know, if everything was a gift or if everything was free, then wouldn't people just be super greedy and take more than they need or whatever? Um, and she's talking about actually this um, this market that she went to when she was a kid. And then, like, you know, one time everything was just free. Everything was a gift. And when everything became a gift, um, she actually felt self-restraint because she didn't want to take too much because everything was being given as a gift, right? If it was just a very low price, she might have scooped as much as possible. Um, but because it was a gift, it was like, oh, well, I'll take what, what only I need, right? Um, it, it reminds me of like like trick or treat, right? Like like the, the sort of like Halloween. I mean, it's October. We're talking about gift yeah. economies. I mean, it's it, it immediately <laughs> makes me think of Halloween, right? Like in this this celebration of like freely giving away candy, and like you know, you'll have the like little bowl sitting out that's filled to the brim with candy that says you know something to the effect of like take as much as as you need or like please take only one and people generally like do so because they recognize that this is not something that they are entitled to but rather mm -hmm. it's something that is you know being freely given and they want to be able to share it with others as well right yeah. and so like you know we i think uh, i think a lot of people um you know might be like you know well gift economy that's so that's such a primitive weird idea but i think like mm -hmm. we see it happening all the time in the real world and, and i think that it has really direct ramifications which is one of the reasons why i was like like oh my god play that shit back like when you because <laughs> yeah. like, that quote's so good right like it really and i had never well, it's not that i never thought about that but like it's, it's just a beautiful concise way of putting it right that that mm -hmm. the social relationship that exists is necessarily different in, in, a, in a gift giving than if it is a, a transaction like it, mm -hmm. it, when capitalism enters into it 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 really does atomize the the, the transaction so mm -hmm. there's a giver and the receiver there's the producer and there's the consumer mm -hmm. and in a gift economy really in many ways creates that that level of reciprocity in, in some mm -hmm. really beautiful ways god damn that's so good yeah exactly and and it also it's it's about you know viewing what we get from our ecosystems as gifts that we are grateful for and then we actually owe some reciprocity to the earth as well right so it's not just oh this has been dug up for me and i paid my money so i don't owe anything more than this right it's oh everything that we're getting like everything that we get from the earth is a gift and when you view it as a gift then um you know you feel gratitude and you feel like okay i need to give back to, to nurture this relationship um and she talks about like strawberries and how she would um as a kid you know help the strawberries grow so that she could get more strawberry like it was a reciprocal relationship or whatever um but yeah she says it's human perception that makes the world a gift and when we view the world this way strawberries and humans alike are transformed the relationship of gratitude and reciprocity thus developed can increase the evolutionary fitness of both plant and animal um and yeah she talks about the fact that obviously like she talks about commodity fetishism and how something is very deeply broken when everything we get or like the food we get comes on styrofoam or in this plastic right um or it's just this carcass of a being who who only had you know whose only chance at life was a cramped cage and how that's actually not a gift of life it's a theft um and she asks us to think about you know how can we find our way to understand the earth as a gift again and to make our relations with the world sacred again in in the sense that you know we will have 
we will uh, foster that kind of reciprocity. And so, you know, obviously I'm like, okay, I don't know how we're going <laughs> to, how do we get there? What are the steps that we need to get there? Um, but I, I just really love like the ideological consistency, I suppose, between everything that she's talking about and everything that she's proposing and how it all does align very, very well with this worldview that um, sees humans as inseparably interlinked with all of the species around us you know like we've co-evolved actually with different species and plants and animals um and we've just forcefully removed ourselves from all of that and i just i think that any vision for a communist you know anarchist whatever future is going to really have to grapple with these ideas of, of worldview and, and where how how we kind of reconnect with our ecosystems um and obviously you know not we don't have to go to like and prim or whatever necessarily no 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 definitely not <laughs> no no and i think that that's the thing too like it's like i think a lot of people get turned off by some of these conversations and, and in many ways i think i was guilty of this as well when i was you know younger and more impulsive um and more you know lifestyleist than anything um, mm-hmm. but like, you know, this idea that, you know, that, that, that decentering the human is somehow primitivistic or is mm-hmm. somehow a regression is I think incredibly toxic. Right. And, and I think that people are really kind of, uh, you know, showing their cards when, uh, they're fearful of that, because what it means is it, it, in many ways to a lot of people, it means losing the ability to dominate nature, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and the ability losing the ability to be a conqueror and an exploiter. And so I think when people, myself included, you know, rebel against this idea, in many ways what they're rebelling against is a system of power and a system of exploitation. And that mm-hmm. really, you know, when we begin to decenter humanity and we begin to really recognize that we're nothing less and nothing more than a evolved social ape on a planet filled with other animals, that you know this is not actually a dispiriting thing but it's actually an incredibly like liberatory concept right mm-hmm. and that that you know the idea uh the, the sort of anarchic idea that my freedom is necessarily bound up in your freedom and in the freedom mm-hmm. of other human beings it is also necessarily bound up in the in the emancipation of all other beings right mm-hmm. and that that it's not just humanity that needs to get free but it's our entire biome that needs mm-hmm. to be liberated right and that you know we have got to break through the tedium of this anthropocentric type of thinking which in many ways has of course led to anthropogenic climate change right i mean it, mm-hmm. this this catastrophe this 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 climate crisis is absolutely engendered by our conception and our self-aggrandization of of, of our of our humanity right you know mm-hmm. this this sort of this sort of exploitative system of capitalism which exacerbates climate change is an entirely man-made thing and and if we're Mm -hmm. going to dismantle it then it means that we have to necessarily grapple with freeing the rest of our ecological surroundings Mm -hmm. otherwise we're not going to be free either Mm -hmm. very well said i have so many thoughts so uh first of all um yeah, I, I mean, I loved what you even mentioned this before. This idea that animals are our comrades, and uh, we—it's true. 
They are. They are absolutely our comrades. We actually have a sticker for the Vegan Vanguard that says animals are our comrades. Oh, no <laughs> way. Do you guys really? That's so cute. Yeah, <laughs> it is really, really cute. So yeah, uh, check that out. But but absolutely, yeah, definitely our emancipation is incredibly, um, like, uh, yeah, irrevoc- irrevocably tied up with the emancipation of all animals and, and all living things. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people do get kind of defensive about conversations like this and, and think that, you know, oh, no, but that means we're going to have to be super primitive, etc. And I think that it, a big problem is that a lot of people are actually pretty attached right um i think uh john and ash from horror Van- vanguard called it like libidinal investment um but people are are attached to what we do have now under capitalism right like people want to just to live kind of a similar lifestyle in the west right and they don't really realize that you know, if everyone were to consume the way that we did, we would need about six, seven Earths, right? We obviously don't have that. Um, and so I think people get uncomfortable because they think, oh, well, I still want to have all my video games. I still want to have all this. I still want to have all that. Um, and people are, people are, you know, under capitalism spell, basically. And I'm not saying that we're not going to have any of those things in the future. Um, but I also think that if presented a choice between um you know keeping the the luxuries and like keeping netflix and video games and whatever we have now or moving to a you know eco anarchist eco socialist future um where maybe we don't have the material throughput to have as many of these things like maybe we have a kind of a sharing program where not everyone has a computer but you know uh, we can share things or whatever. I don't know if I think a lot of people when pre- with when presented that choice are like, mm, uh, you know, they actually have to to think about it. <laughs> Even leftists, right? They actually have to think like, oh, I don't know. Um, and I just think that if we aren't, I guess, if we aren't like willing to recenter reciprocity because we're so attached to all the 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 gadgets that we have then we're just gonna like this is basically in my view why all of society is not acting as fast as we could be like obviously it has to do with the capitalists and the the companies and whatever Um, but i think that so many people are so invested that they would rather just dream of the end of the world as long as we can keep things the way they are now as long as possible um, instead of actually dreaming of, okay, well, what, what do we have to do right now, right here to change this? And, you know, if things don't look exactly the same, am I going to be fine with that? You know? Right. Yeah, no, totally. And Mark Fisher has that, that quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Right. And for so many people, I think that this is really reflected, especially in like our culture as well. There's a reason why there are so many dystopias and, and, uh, it's why that's taken such a hold of people's imagination in recent memory is because of the fact that people cannot imagine a world without capitalism. And, and it's one of the things that really fascinates me. And, and is one of the things that I've been researching, um, here in, in, in Tallahassee, just kind of thinking through and, and wrestling with. Um, but like, I think too, there's this really urgent kind of need to think about if it's true, right? If we take, if we kind of take a step back and like, 
you know, unbuild these walls that we've built around our heads and our hearts about our our place as being apart from nature. And if we recognize that we really are a part of nature, then that necessitates, it, it absolutely necessitates a radical shift in the ways that we conduct ourselves, not just with one another on like an interpersonal level, but also on a level with other like other like beings in the world right and mm-hmm. and it, 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 i think a lot of this too really stems not only from the atomization of capitalism and how it's atomized us from our natural world but i really do think a lot of it also stems from patriarchy and i, I want to kind of mm-hmm. loop back a little bit to the two stories that you presented right um the mm-hmm. stories of um woman in the sky is that correct sky woman yep of of sky woman and 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 eve right because the story of eve is an incredibly patriarchal one right i mean it, oh, yeah. it demonizes and makes you know women out to be the the the, the progenitors of sin in many ways right and mm-hmm. and in many ways this justifies the first emergence of hierarchy right patriarchy is the the first real hierarchy that emerged in human society and and i think that we're really bound up in this sort of patriarchal conception of society. And, and I think that, you know, uh, Sky Woman really presents a compelling alternative to mm-hmm. that, that very masculine, very domineering, very uh, uh, exploitative and oppressive system of thought about mm-hmm. our relationship to the natural world. And so I, I was wondering if, if maybe you could comment a little bit on that as well. Yeah, that's such a great, great, great thought. Um, And I fully agree. Yeah, I mean, Sky Woman's story is (laughs) obviously, you know, women are venerated. Um, And I think it also goes with the entire worldview that understands the intelligence of life and celebrates life and venerates life, right? So obviously, um, women, um, or just non men, um, or anyone who is able to carry life, right, um, then becomes also, uh, you know, venerated or, um, or just appreciated <laughs> and not, you know, subjugated, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, there's so much crossover between, you know, patriarchy and our capitalist exploitative relationship with nature. I mean, um, just the fact that it's considered to be, you know, mother nature, but that, uh, you know, uh, so much in, um, like the American frontier, et cetera, was about conquering nature or even all these romantic people um, like Thoreau and, and Muir and such um, who who write about going out into the wilderness and, and having those experiences. A lot of them are really centered around this lone male hero who goes out and conquers or finds himself, uh, right? And, and nature is really cast, um, or it's feminized in a lot of ways. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I fully agree. And, and Maureen and I talked recently about how we feel as though, because, you know, patriarchy, uh, was, as you said, I think one of the first hierarchies, um, and we feel as though capitalism is in many ways, just a logical extension of patriarchy, right? Like it's, it's the logical, uh, economic system that would flow from, from such a, a system of domination and absolutely yeah so yeah i think that's 
very, very good thoughts there on patriarchy. No, I mean, and, and it's one of those things too, like, I, I don't know, I don't know how you feel, Maxie, about it, but sometimes it, it, it can be, it can be really discouraging because I think that as much as we purport on the left to be intersectional and to be, you know, proponents of, of total liberation, there are still like these just incredibly toxic, like pockets of, mm-hmm. of exploitation and of misogyny that exist on the left. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's one of those things where people, I think a, a lot of people think that, you know, suddenly if we have a capital R revolution, then, <laughs> you know, it's going to be great and yes. we're going to defeat racism and we're going to defeat patriarchy and it's all going to be awesome. And we'll all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and march into yes. the brilliant communist utopia. And it's like, nah, dog, like th- this <laughs> shit is like super ingrained into human society. And, and like, God knows mm. that I'm still fucking terrible at unlearning a lot of this shit. Uh, mm. It's, it's so... It's so easy to get into this uh, myopic, utopic, um, and, I, and, I, and I think for good reason, right? Like, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to, like, really be focused on class and on, on, on the way that it can bring us together. But I think it's also incredibly important to recognize that even if we have a capital R revolution tomorrow, we will not have changed the fundamental, mm-hmm. you know, relation between, uh, you know, like patriarchy between racism between mm-hmm. uh you know heteronormativity and and I think that I don't know I think that it's it's a it's a really daunting prospect and it's one of the the reasons like again I don't know if you know that you know Coffee with Comrades broadly, broadly falls under like a sort of anarchic bent but like it's one of yeah. the reasons why I keep coming back to anarchy as a as a such a liberatory thing because it constantly is inviting us to continue to criticize continue continue to ask questions and continue to dismantle and and force authority to justify itself and when mm-hmm. that authority cannot justify itself then to dismantle it and to abolish it right mm-hmm. and, and i think that that's such a uh, a timeless project I, I i don't see a way in which human beings will ever be able to fully extricate themselves from the, the the temptation of hierarchy and mm-hmm. yet we can create and adopt these systems of thinking and systems of being and prefiguring the world that we want to see in order to continually practice what marx called the ruthless critique of all that exists right mm-hmm. to to never cease asking questions and to never cease challenging these forms of hierarchy and dominion to to justify themselves and then when they are incapable of doing so to fight against them with everything that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up this idea of capital R revolution because I actually also talk about that in my upcoming video and how that in that idea in itself is patriarchal and masculinist, I feel, because... Ooh, tell me, tell me more. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah, because it's framing it as like a war that we can just win with our weapons, right? It's framing the whole problem as, okay, here are our enemies. And because of these greedy people... Uh, you know, this capitalist class, um, which is very varied, by the way, you know, like, I know you're not supposed to like, like your landlords or whatever. But my landlord right now is quite nice. Like He's a nice person. He's from Iran. He was just he was left this house from his parents or whatever. And uh, the rent is quite low or, you know, so but it's not like I like that he's a landlord, but like, I recognize that he's just a person. And I think that a lot of the framing of capital R revenue 
revolution and like, oh, we're just going to line up all these people against the wall and liquidate them and, and whatnot. Um, I think that that is, I mean, in itself, I think that that's a power fantasy that should be examined deeply. Yeah, for right? real. I for mean, fucking real, dude. <laughs> and like, yeah. I get it too. Like, you know, I get, I like people have been just exploited and have had their, their, their labor, like exploited, have had the surplus value of their, their work exploited and have been kicked over and fucked over. But I, I fail to see how creating more misery and suffering is somehow going to make a make things better like that doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense to me whatsoever but it, it's also not really a systemic critique right because it's saying you know as soon as we line up all these people like these are our enemies and they've wronged us and i think a really masculinist way of dealing with being wronged is to just wrong back and then right. it's like eye for an eye that's justice right um but that's not actually creating any kind of healing right that's not actually necessarily healing the harm that was done to you it's kind of just taking out that harm on someone else whereas and if, yeah, sorry, sorry so i didn't mean to interrupt oh no go ahead <laughs> well and it also like precludes the ability to heal right like if yeah. you kill the person who has hurt you there is never a chance for you to come to forgiveness or for them to be like come back to justice because they mm-hmm. cannot restore themselves they cannot redeem themselves that you have stolen from them their ability to be redeemed and you have stolen from yourself your ability to forgive and to to grow right and like you'll never be able to heal because that person is literally dead like you kill them and like and i think that you know a lot of people might say like oh you're just being idealistic but i I think that this is just the opposite i think that this is Mm -hmm. an incredibly materialist way of looking at justice right Mm -hmm. it is impossible for us to heal it and and i think we can tie this back into the you know sort of anthropocentric kind of conception of things it is impossible for us to heal and to to truly be restored without that dialectical tension between both the person who has has caused the abuse and the person who has been dispossessed right Mm -hmm. if there isn't some sort of reconciliation there if that is just if that connection is severed then it is impossible for us to actually be able to move forward in a way that is healthy, in a way that is productive, a way mm-hmm. that is redemptive, in a way that is just. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because, you know, these people, like these individuals are not the problem. Like we all understand that the system itself is the problem, but then somehow we have this idea that as long as we just liquidate the capitalist class, then that means that we will then live well after that, right? And I right. think that, um, you know, it's it's the difference between, like, I just think that that idea is very phallic, right? We'll just tear down our enemies and then things will be great as as opposed to um more of like maybe a femme coded way of looking at this where like no we actually have to birth what we want into existence and that is really difficult and takes a lot but you know if we're if at the very first thing that we're doing when we're trying to like birth this beautiful utopia into existence is just you know lining people up and have having this mass murder and then kind of turning around and being like okay now we're now we can just live well right yeah. um it's just like i mean it's like thinking that like oh well the united states was founded upon the genocide of indigenous peoples uh and it's it's a failed state uh mm-hmm. so the best way to make a, a more youthful and, and energetic and and utopian state is to line up all the capitalists and shoot them and you know mm-hmm. it just like it it's it's uh, 
it, it strikes me as a, as a profoundly idealist kind of approach to, to quote unquote capital R revolution. And I think you're absolutely right mm-hmm. that it, it is coded in some really masculine kind of ways. And, and what's mm-hmm. more, like, I also think that one of the things that I think isn't nearly talked about enough is the way that revolution is in many ways this deeply and profoundly personal and interpersonal dynamic right and and that mm-hmm. you know a lot of people whenever i talk about this and, and i was just in uh, atlanta recently doing a a panel with cindy milstein i don't know if you've read her work but just absolutely gorgeous uh writing and, and, a, and mm-hmm. a terrific human being but mm-hmm. um we were doing a panel uh, on social on, on ecology on anarchism and on disaster relief and um, there's an individual in the audience and they had a question and they asked, you know, all this stuff that you're talking about, about healing and about reciprocity and about, uh, 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 you know, transforming interpersonal relationships. That all sounds well and good, but how are you going to defeat poverty? How are you going to tackle capitalism? And, and, I, and I, I wanted to say to that person, and I, I tried to say this to them in many ways um, as well, is that like... You know, the problem of thinking that we can just somehow magically wave uh, a bunch of guns around and shoot a bunch of people and destroy capitalism and then everything's going to be hunky-dory is Mm -hmm. itself idealistic. And and if we really are truly committed to making the world a better place, then it necessarily must begin with decentering ourselves and recognizing that we are not caught within these totalizing systems but that we can really like you said use the, the, the using your metaphor we can birth into the world new ways of being we can prefigure the ways that we want to interact and with with one another the ways we want to mm-hmm. seek joy together to seek pleasure to seek love to seek compassion um to creativity etc and the, the mm-hmm. ways that we actually form the basis for revolution are necessarily going to be interpersonal and are, are necessarily going to be deeply intimate with other human mm-hmm. beings yeah. and, and of course with the rest of like the planet and our biome absolutely yeah i mean i've said this before as well but i mean the hard work of revolution is actually building the society right like it's totally. one thing like you know to create this critical mass and have this tactical plan to storm there that's a very kind of formulaic thing right it, it takes like military tactics but you can't you know militarize or you can't use those tactics necessarily uh to create this better world and to do that absolutely we need to be starting um at the community level building community and building the world that we want to live in um otherwise there's there's going to be nothing there when you just storm the white house and then oh capital has fallen then what do you have right um right. and and, it, and, it, and then at that point, that's not a very good time to be trying to figure out how then to. No, that's the worst time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. It's the worst possible time because you're gonna have counter revolutionaries trying to tear you down, which is like Absolutely. exactly why I'm such a huge proponent of like building dual power, right? Like yes. having the capacity to defend ourselves and defend our communities and defend one another is 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 absolutely vital. And mm-hmm. and I, and I hope that listeners don't think that I'm I'm pew pewing that because I think that it's essential. Work. But yes. I also think that simultaneously, not in a, a hierarchy, but in, in, a, in a dialectical tension, it is also totally necessary to put our fingers into the earth to feel mm-hmm. and to watch and, and to see the ways that we can help grow with and grow alongside our natural world, how we can pick food off of the, the stem and, and put it directly into our mouths. Like there's something really profound about 
Mm-hmm. There's something really profound about being able to reach out and to take a a piece of fruit off of a branch and to eat it immediately. There's something mm-hmm. about that that type of relationship to the natural world that is is so profound. And I think mm-hmm. that we have to be building both of these things. We have to have the ability to fight but we also have to have the ability to build we have to have the ability to destroy but we have to have the ability to birth and i think that Mm -hmm. you know focusing on one or the other is necessarily going to hamstring us and that in Mm -hmm. order to actually move forward in a way that will build the type of world that we want to see it we we must necessarily march forward with both of those things in dialectical tension always Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah recently we had um ash from horror vanguard on the show talking about uh death positivity and the preppers movement and we were talking about how you know obviously the the right-wing preppers movement is terrible but that you know in the coming several decades when capital is just no longer able to meet the needs of the people and the environmental crisis is worsening and and all of that we actually really need, do need to start like communal prepping, right? Like we have we have to actually be able to be there to not only meet our own needs, but like meet the needs of the people and the community as um, as all of this really falls apart. And of course, at some point, we will come into like a clash with the state or whatever. So you know, however that looks like, we don't really know. But I think that. Yeah, I, I, I'm really focusing my energies now on this idea of building and of um, like unlearning these Western worldviews and of, um, yeah, le- learning to get my hands more in the soil or learning to actually be present in the place that I am. And I think, as you said, you know, when you pick something off of the vine yourself, um, you're really aware of the fact that that is a gift, right? Like you can just feel like, oh, this is a gift here that I'm getting immediately from this plant. And you can feel that gratitude and and want to, um, you know, offer up your own reciprocity. Um, But when you are so disconnected from everything that you consume, then it becomes pretty impossible it's just commodity fetishism basically um and i think that you know although in our whatever future utopia we're thinking of probably we won't we won't be producing everything that we are consuming i would hope that we we would find a way to um you know still maintain this idea of reciprocity and connection so that we aren't just kind of like I don't know, sitting back and letting robots bring us our cell phones and you know, you know you know what I mean? No, totally. And I think that it can it can be both, right? Like there are ways yeah. to, you know, still have industrial production so as it was, but have it be you know, biome centered, have it be eco like brought into, uh, brought into relationship with the natural world. And, and this mm-hmm. is something that I actually think is really good from Bookchin. Like the, the idea of like, uh, he, he has this essay called, um, liberatory technology or something like that and like the whole idea is thinking about ways in which uh technology can be brought more into harmony with uh the world because technology Mm -hmm. is an immoral force right it is it is a tool right it is something Mm -hmm. that human beings have produced and and thus it is in fact itself a natural like byproduct of being in the world right it's and and we Mm -hmm. think of again we kind of think about technology as being opposed to nature as industry being opposed to nature and 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 i think that that is because of capitalism it's it's not a necessary uh, mm. 
predisposition, right? It, it doesn't have to be that way. We can find and build ways in which nature and industry uh, can be, uh, we can be reminded that those things are actually inseparable and that they are integral and that we can find ways to not continue to dispossess the global south, to not continue mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, exploit the resources um, of, of, of the global south, but can instead begin to bring these things into tandem, um, into a you know, like you said, a, a, a vision of a more just and, and useful and utile society, which will necessarily involve us shifting the ways that we think about consumption and production. But I don't mm-hmm. think that, you know, it, it precludes us from, you know, not ever interacting with something unless you made it. I think that yeah. that's, a, that's a dangerous kind of thing as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I guess, I guess... I guess one of the things that I kind of want to close with um, here with you is, you know, you, you, you mentioned before that you were concerned about all the critiques, right? And people not necessarily offering paths forward. And so I was wondering if maybe we could spend the last couple minutes here talking about some of the things that you and I think that human beings could begin to do that will allow us to bring ourselves and one another back into relationship with our our ecological system so that we can begin to decenter humanity and we can step away from anthropocentrism and, and embrace a more biocentric point of view. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a point that uh, in terms of this future society, um, I feel like whatever it does look like or, you know, the extent to which we will incorporate industry into the natural biome um, kind of depends on how much renewable energy and like truly renewable energy we will be able to produce in any given place without over-consuming, like without taking more than our share of the earth res- Earth's resources in terms of like rare earth minerals and, and all the stuff, like all the mining and stuff that needs to be done to create solar panels and all this stuff, right? I think right. that um, that that's really going to determine um, like what our society can look like and, um, you know, thinking about our material throughput. But in terms of what we can be doing right now, um, I think that for me, one of the most important things um, is for for me personally to um, make connections and build relationships with local indigenous nations um, of which I inhabit. Um, I work with a lot of indigenous nations across Canada, but I don't really have a relationship with the nation um, uh, whose territory that I'm inhabiting right now. And I think that it's really, really important for us to um, just basically, you know, humble ourselves and um, and learn from them and do whatever we can to support their sovereignty um, and their leadership and whatnot. Because I really believe that, I mean, A, we don't have the knowledge. Like a, a lot of these nations are... Uh, are those that have a much different worldview. Um, and, you know, it, 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 I, I also believe that some kind of like settler revolution on indigenous land is colonial anyway. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, something that's really important is actually getting to know the indigenous nations uh, that you inhabit, getting to know, um, you know, natural law and the, the constitutions of the nations that you actually inhabit. Um, and yeah just just humbling yourself and trying to learn um from them about the place where you live and getting more in touch with the place the the ecosystems where you live right um i think 
you know, we're in this globalized economy and it's, it's very easy to forget that we're all actually from a place. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one thing. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer suggests that people get involved with, um, like ecological restoration and, and kind of, um, you know, planting i know a lot of people are into like guerrilla gardening and like planting um native species around and planting like food trees around that um that you can start building reciprocal relationships with and then also kind of share that that food and stuff with community um yeah i i don't know do you have any do you have any thoughts no those are all great i love i i personally love guerrilla gardening that shit is so fun yeah. uh like doing like seed bombs and shit that shit rules um there's actually a uh a local group here in uh tallahassee that my housemate started um called live oak radical ecology and and we've been doing a lot of that work and i think that cool you know, that's, that's one of the things that people can do, right. Is, is like, mm-hmm. find your, find your neighbors, find the people who are living beside you. And, and again, begin to build those like interpersonal types of relationships where you begin to decenter yourself and recenter the natural world. And, and in many ways, like, it's kind of a weird thing because like, in many ways by decentering the human, you're still keeping uh, like, uh, in a, in a, in a strange way, human beings, if we are thinking about biocentrism, human beings are still ne- necessarily a part of that ecosystem, right? And so mm-hmm. in many ways, you're not really decentering humanity. You're just reorienting the way that you think about humanity. And I think that that mm-hmm. can be a really empowering thought as well. Um, but I, I digress. Um, other things like that I think people can do, obviously, are getting involved in, I, I think you're absolutely right about decolonizing and and. and getting into especially if you live in the continental uh united states or if you live in canada or if you live in um occupied territory like decentering uh yourself and, and beginning to engage with uh, and listen to indigenous folks is, is absolutely vital um mm-hmm. i think another thing that you can also do uh, is begin to engage with uh, that type of community building that goes beyond just talking about things and actually is beginning the prefigurative work of building by doing community gardens, by mm-hmm. uh, you know organizing uh, a co-op or a food share, by organizing a farmer's market. Even if it's still a market, so to speak, you can still find ways to infuse that with a gift economy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, talk to farmers in your area. Um, I have a lot of really great comrades to our farmers here in uh, in Tallahassee. Um, and I think that, like, you know, it goes beyond just having conversations. It goes beyond just listening. It, it has to also begin to be us actually going to the world itself um, and not in, like, again, not in some sort of pseudo-spiritual or neo-hippie kind of way, but, like, literally returning uh, to the world and putting our, our fingers into the soil plucking fruit from the vine and recognizing that it is a gift and that mm-hmm. we can give those gifts back. And I think that like actually the actual act of doing it in many ways begins the process of, of decentering mm-hmm. the human and, and recentering the biome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have come to think of humans as just this, you know, cancer on the earth or whatever. Um, and that we, we think of conservation as, you know, conserving this people free wilderness or whatever, right? Like, like we don't really view 
a role for ourselves in our ecosystem other than one that is you know damaging and i think that's obviously because we've been living under capitalism for so long but we actually can have a positive role in our environments and just i think remembering that and then as you said getting out and actually starting to do that um i think definitely that will that will help to transform our worldview kind of as we are doing it um so yeah i i really like that a lot and um yeah i mean just just trying to decolonizing our minds from capitalist mindsets that 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 have made us believe that humans are separate from nature and that also humans have no positive role to play in nature we just destroy it you know 100 100 well maxi thank you so much uh for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um i have long admired your work and i'm glad that we got to finally collaborate um yes yeah, you yeah, for sure. Can you tell folks if they're not aware um, where they can find your podcast, where they can find your stuff on YouTube, um, where they can find you online? Um, yeah, just just plug your stuff. Absolutely. Well, I just first want to say, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was such a great convo and I love your podcast. I've been following it for a while too and just great stuff. Like keep it up. Um, so for me, I have a YouTube channel called Mexi, M-E-X-I-E. So you can find me on YouTube and I co-host a podcast called The Vegan Vanguard with my bestie Maureen, who is another awesome, uh, intersectional, pro-intersectional vegan activist. And you can find us at veganvanguardpodcast.com. Um, or you can listen to us on, you know, iTunes or Google play or, or whatever, uh, app that you like to listen to podcasts on. We're, we're probably on there. Uh, so yeah, that's where you can find me. And then I'm also on Twitter and Facebook at Mexi YT. Hell yeah. And we will link to all of that stuff. Also, if you're listening to this on the vegan Vanguard feed, you can find coffee with comrades on Twitter. It's uh, at coffee w comrades uh, you can also visit www.coffeewithcomrades.com and finally uh, we are also on all the podcast stuff so spotify itunes all that junk so you can find us there as well uh, mexi thank you so much comrade i hope you feel better i, I hope that uh, the sickness ebbs and i hope your partner feels better too um, <laughs> thank you so and, much uh, yeah y'all you take care okay yeah you too thank you so much for having me on Cheers. Cheers.